0: Hello, everybody. If you're listening to this, thank you. Um, This is my first episode, so I wanted to take a minute to talk about what I want to do with this podcast. I guess I should introduce myself. So my name is Sophia. For those of you who don't know me, though, I suspect that it's mostly friends and family listening at this point. Um, Well, I have a Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical and Energy Engineering, and I'm currently pursuing a Master's of Science in Energy Policy and Climate at Johns Hopkins University. I started this podcast because I saw a major disconnect between energy and climate issues and the general public's understanding of our energy systems. I found myself just wanting to educate the people around me about it, and I couldn't seem to find the right outlet. So if you're interested, or if you have a friend who cares, or if someone in your family won't stop talking about climate change, please send them my way. <laughs> my hope is to bridge the gap between passion and knowledge, and to inform my friends and family, and anyone else who cares, about the very basics of energy and climate. I'm, I plan on covering topics like the basics of the EPA, the United States Energy Mix, domestic and international climate policy, carbon credits, renewables, emissions baselines, and the list goes on. I'm also going to try to rely on what listeners have questions about, what topics are interesting to you all. So please, if you're listening to this, go straight to my Instagram or Twitter or any of my social media, or if you have my number, text me. Um, DM me the topic that you're dying to learn about. I'm all yours. so my Instagram handle is at the.essential.podcast and my Twitter is Pirinweir, P-I-E-R-I-N-W-E-I-R my two last names so you can follow me tweet me your questions at me if you want to argue which I love arguing or just say hello Super last thing, I'm going to post show notes on the website or podcast site that'll include links to the sources that I consulted while researching this topic and any other links that I think are relevant to the topic at hand. I'm going to make a habit of doing that for every episode. And I'll also have blog posts available about other topics that you can peruse along the way. Okay, so on to the meat of the conversation.
1: Okay. Okay, we're recording. <laughs> Ooh, I'm ready, for the audience.
0: Okay. Um Did you Google energy security?
1: Yeah, I just read like most of the Wikipedia on it because I figured that's kind of what a person off the street would read. <laughs> huh, just like yeah. the first lazy ass
0: thing I could find. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. Okay, so our topic is energy supply security during the pandemic. So basically, energy security is the continuity of energy supply. And it's usually considered in the face of some threat to that supply. Basically, it's the reliability of the process of getting energy from the raw material to the end user. A couple of simplified examples, the gasoline supply chain, which includes the process of getting oil out of the ground, so extraction, then being processed at a refinery, then transported to a wholesaler, and finally delivered to its eventual place at a gas station where you and I will pump this gasoline into our cars. Another example is mining raw materials like silicone, which then goes through a series of manufacturing processes and eventually becomes a component of a solar panel, which...
1: Did you say silica? What was that? Did you say silica?
0: I said silicone.
1: Oh, silicone.
0: Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, But, you know, like... It, it could be actually any of the raw materials that go into making solar panels or wind turbines or um, even gas turbines. Anything that has anything to do with energy becomes a part of that uh, process. Are
1: people included?
0: Yeah, people are included. People are included. So the people who work at... Um, at power plants, the people who work in petroleum, uh, even in... So that's why they're considered essential workers. Exactly. Yeah, so they're, they're essential workers, even if they have a far removed capacity from what, you know, you and I might see as being critical or essential, but basically you know, an engineer who works on designing a specific drill bit that goes into drilling in a specific region or a specific type of petroleum drilling is essential to the whole um, security of the process of getting petroleum out of the ground and to the user. So that, in turn, makes it essential
1: like your cousin got in who said that's no, why she's, she's essential. Still works. Exactly. Which I don't know what she does, but
0: I mean anything having to do with oil and gas is going to be an essential job. Yeah, I
1: mean so if she processes payroll or whatever, she's essential.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And if you su- if you have a job that's su- supporting one of the critical activities, you're also essential. Which kind of, you know, it spreads very quickly <laughs> from the 16 right. critical infrastructure sectors. Causes like a snowball effect to where a lot of people are actually really essential.
1: So. Which is why
0: child care is essential. Which is why child care is essential. So yeah, I mean, child care. So during this pandemic, child care was considered essential if it's for people working in essential jobs. Right. So, it's a supporting role to one of the essential activities. It's complicated. So, yeah, I mean, so, back to the, the supply chain of solar panels, for example, that involves mining raw materials like silicone or any of the other raw materials that go in to making them, but also the people involved in manufacturing the solar panels um, and then, so all of that goes through the manufacturing process, then it's assembled, then sold, and then installed. So along all of those points, that's, that's part of the supply chain for energy. Um, and obviously those are like short summaries of the supply chains. Um, when you take a closer look, they get really complicated really quickly. And along each point on the supply chain, there's opportunity for disruption, which means the activity can be affected by some external factor. So, bringing it back into the current context of the pandemic, for example, in manufacturing, if people are sick or if there's, you know, if only 85% of the people are able to go into work because the other 15% of the train workers are sick, then that's going to slow down production. That's going to affect the supply chain. But something that's actually uh, common to all of the critical infrastructure sectors is that they rely on two of the critical infrastructures, which is infrastructure sectors, which is transportation and energy. So energy supply for electricity and transportation are both extremely important in their own right, but they're also super important for maintaining the other critical infrastructure. Okay, I just basically said that. Um, Oh, so for example, two other critical infrastructure sectors that are really important to maintain right now, the health sector and food supply, they rely directly on transportation of people and materials and on electricity, which in turn both rely directly on energy. So, I mean, just imagine if the electricity went out at a hospital where there's 200 people on ventilators. Right. Energy security is extremely important for getting out of a situation like this, and it's something that um, the government actually spends a good amount of resources on trying to maintain energy security.
1: I mean, do you think it comes under a bigger kind of umbrella of just infrastructure security? What does? Energy security.
0: If infrastructure, if energy security is a part of infrastructure security? Well, not... It's, it's beyond just infrastructure security.
1: So, so I was saying infrastructure security as the overarching...
0: Well... Let's think about where we get our energy sources from. Um, Like in the United States, the energy mix is... I think it's about 40% natural gas, uh, 30% coal, 10% um, nuclear. That might not be right. And then 20% renewables. That's just kind of like a roundabout thing, right? Right. But we don't manufacture any of our renewable stuff here. So we don't manufacture solar panels or wind turbines. We have those imported from other countries. So the global marketplace also has to do with energy security. Like the, the global energy market. You know, we also import oil. So our national energy security relies on other countries providing those things. Right. Which is scary. That's why so many countries' energy security plans sometimes are at odds with plans to be more sustainable. Because for a country that maybe doesn't have natural gas... Natural gas is, is the cleanest fossil fuel. So for countries that don't have significant production of domestic natural gas, they rely on coal, which is a dispatchable energy source. Which means that if demand surges, they can ramp up production. And they can also store coal on site and they can use it whenever they need it. But you can't...
1: Yeah, it doesn't degrade.
0: But also, so yes, that's one point. It doesn't degrade, but also um, you can't store renewable energy sources. You can't, unless you have batteries, but batteries are not cost effective on a large scale at all right now. You can't stockpile it. It's just whenever it's happening, you got to use it. So that's why the whole world isn't 100% renewable everywhere. Because we need dispatchable, we need some dispatchable energy. Right. So, along that same strand, right now during the pandemic, the energy sector is experiencing a twofold situation first, the pandemic, and second, the price war. Between Saudi Arabia and Russia, I don't know if you've heard anything about that.
1: Um, I mean, I just i I heard something yesterday in Trump's um, press conference. Mm-hmm. Just what he said about you know he was talking about how basically the oil was, or not oil, but gas was going to go down and how that was bad for the for, for the oil companies but he did very in a small way reference that it is good for consumers but consumers aren't using as much right now. Exactly,
0: so it's well not actually benefiting from. us, really.
1: Yeah, and that um, and that Russia and Saudi Arabia want it to be higher too,
0: that's all I remember. Hmm, yeah. Okay, well, so I'll give you the backstory that I have on the Saudi Russia situation. So basically during an OPEC meeting, so during an OPEC meeting uh they were not coming to an agreement regarding the amount of oil to produce because you know they control the amount of oil that they produce in order to keep the prices at the point that benefits them. Um, So Saudi Arabia wanted to decrease production to keep oil prices high as the economic fallout from coronavirus ensued. But Russia refused. And so in the heat of the moment, Saudi Arabia left the negotiating table and flooded the market with crude oil, which led to massive price drops. And they did that in hopes of pressuring Russia to give in, but they did that. it's been a month now since they...
1: Okay, I did hear that. Like, I was going to say that was several weeks ago.
0: Yeah it, it was, yeah, it was a month. So it's been a month since the talks degraded and negotiations are still not happening. So last I saw, I think yesterday or today, I saw a couple articles just saying that price, uh, that negotiations have been postponed three more days, and this and that. So still, they're still um, at their price war or whatever.
1: But I mean, how does that impact what prices are set at in the U.S.?
0: Because we don't set prices. The. American
1: oil companies don't set prices. Like Exxon and...
0: So, okay. So when you're going to sell a house, or let's say you want to sell your iPhone. You go to eBay. You're going to post it, right? You're going to post it like... You decide you want to get all of your money back on it. So you're going to sell it for $1,000. And you look at the other listings and they're all between $100 and $200. And there's like tons of listings. There's like a 100 other listings out there listed at 100 to $200. You're probably never going to sell your iPhone. It's going to be on there forever. Um,
1: yeah, but the, what I don't understand about that analogy is that <clears throat> I can't go to Russia or... Um Who was the other one?
0: Saudi Arabia to buy I their can't crude go to oil.
1: Russia or Saudi Arabia and buy my gas. I mean I can only go down the road to the gas station but they is
0: sell they sell crude oil to refineries worldwide. So refineries are bidding on oil. Wherever they find the cheapest one, they're going to buy it. It doesn't make a difference if it's from Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, um, or the United States. They're going to buy whichever one is cheapest for them. I see. Yeah. It's just... The market is just global. Right. So... The market chooses the price. That's how they set the price by increasing or decreasing production because by increasing supply in the global market, they're going to drive the price down because right. there's a surplus.
1: Saudi Arabia can afford to do that because there's, there's, they're the big, they're the elephant in the room or whatever. They're I mean... The big- Yeah, they're the
0: big guy. I mean, kind of, but also 80% of their revenue is from oil. So they can't sustain that for very long. And Russia knows that they can't sustain that. I think that's why they're holding out. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of complicated (laughs) in that respect. Oh, man. I find that really funny. Okay, now, aside from the price war, Google has produced reports based on opt-in location data from cell phones indicating the percent decreases in mobility. And what those reports show is that general mobility is down across the United States because of the quarantines. So, of course, gasoline demand is down as a result of that. Um, just an interesting side note overall I think that recreational travel was down 40% from the baseline here in the United States that's an average or whatever in Dallas it's around that average in New York it was down 85% mm-hmm. in Italy it was down 95% from the baseline mm. so that just means that We're not taking it as seriously here. Which I find to be kind of crazy. Yeah. So, basically, that heavily increased supply combined with the greatly decreased demand is a double whammy for gas prices. They're at an all-time low. I heard on the radio today that the cheapest gas price in Texas in Port Arthur, mm-hmm. guess how much it is per gallon? Oh,
1: 50 cents? I don't know. 99 cents. <laughs> <laughs> I heard Trump and he said 50 cents, that's why I said it, because, you
0: know, Yeah, so reliable. Maybe wholesale. It, 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 I think it is around 50 cents on wholesale prices. Mm-hmm. So Because remember, um the refineries they don't own the gas stations, so they sell it they mark it up and sell it. Or they sell it and then the gas stations mark it up. Right. Right. So those are the lowest prices in twenty years. Mm-hmm, that was for sure. what they also said that last time gas cost ninety-nine cents, it was in nineteen ninety-nine. <laughs>
1: Doesn't that just say that it could be 99 cents, though, if they
0: wanted it to? Well, I don't think it's that simple. It.
1: So. You know, I'm always looking for greedy corporations.
0: Yeah. I don't think it's that simple because um, it's like when someone has a sale. Like, remember when you used to make earrings? When you had earrings for, like, a long time just sitting on the shelf, wouldn't you mark them down? No,
1: that's not a good example that I would just give away, but yeah. Well, I, I there think... you go.
0: It's like the type of markdown, you know what I mean? 100% discount. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, so just because somebody gives a discount, for example, doesn't mean that they can afford to always sell it at that price. And right. th- this situation, like... Producers in the United States can't produce it for that price.
1: No. Yeah, I
0: see. So it, can't, it, can, it could be 99 cents if we only bought Saudi oil, but we don't want to be in that position because then that becomes political leverage.
1: Um, on a side note, I just talked to Janet the other day, and Andrew has a new job. He works in Houston at a like a consulting group, his little piece of the, of the big, you know, little cog in a big wheel is that when um, like the Exxons and those guys do their financials, they have to calculate the value of petroleum that they're like projects that are in progress where they haven't, you know, sucked up all the oil out of the ground yet. The value of the part that hasn't yet been
0: extracted. Wow. They have to estimate that. You
1: should definitely connect with him because that sounds like a whole different
0: thing, right? Yeah. Definitely. I'm definitely going to ask him about that. I'm just going to ask him point blank. How many gallons are left? (laughs) Just tell me. (laughs) Just so I can know. (laughs)
1: I'm sure he'll let you
0: know. <laughs> he has that knowledge. <laughs> That's actually like a really... Okay, so one interesting point to that is that it depends on what processes you're relying on. So there were different estimates before we came up with fracking on how much uh, like natural gas we had because a lot of it just wasn't even accessible.
1: Right.
0: And also... Yeah. A lot of it wasn't economically viable to extract because fracking was so expensive, but then natural guys, gas prices went up globally, which enabled us to do the frac. Fracking. fracking is the main reason that we've reduced our emissions. Did you know that? Mm -mm. Yeah, because all the natural gas that comes from fracking is replacing coal. Earthquakes,
1: that's all I'm going to (laughs) say.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, Anyway, so... We were talking about the 99 cents per gallon in Port Arthur Mm -hmm. and what I wanted to talk about is what that does to producers. So if producers have been banking on stable prices that have, have remained within a certain range for a long period of time. They may have made investments, like in new buildings, new equipment, or they might be expanding their businesses. Um, There's basically a certain gas price above which it's profitable to produce gas, which means they're able to continue producing gas, and below which it's not profitable. And actually a press release that I saw today from the Energy Information Administration, called the short-term energy outlook, indicates that gas production is slowing down in the United States. So, I'm guessing that that's because many companies find themselves below their profitable production price point. So, as a result of that, they've slowed or stopped production. And if that carries on for long enough, those companies won't ramp up production again once demand increases here, after the quarantine. And we'll be left with a shortage of gasoline.
1: So what about electricity and some of the other things, or is this all about gas?
0: Yeah, I'm going to talk about electricity a little bit. So, um... What I was going to say is that that all sounded fine to those of us who want to go 100% renewable, which that includes me and you, Um, but we haven't gone 100% renewable, and we haven't gone 100% electric, so we're still relying on this production that could potentially ramp down, we're still relying on that production in our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. And that is what is called an energy security vulnerability. And it is in part a result of the sharp demand changes during the pandemic. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read a quote from the Energy Information Administration's Short-Term Energy Outlook that I felt like just summed it up. Basically the answer to the question of this session of how secure is our supply during the pandemic. Um, So here's the quote. COVID-19 has both directly and indirectly affected global fuel demand oil production, fuel prices, global refinery activity, personal and business travel, manufacturing activity, and supply chain networks, and the effects of these impacts are manifesting in nearly every aspect of domestic and global economies.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So, what does that mean? Basically, it's another way of saying that all of the changes that we're experiencing in our daily lives and consequently the changes to our energy usage patterns are aggregating to have a significant effect on the global energy system from production to supply chain to market prices all across the board. Mm -hmm. But even... Well you Go say? No, you say. You talk.
1: Well, one of the questions that I thought about was, or, you know, the, one of the questions that I considered is do you think energy security is more about being prepared for a disruption or being prepared to respond to a disruption?
0: What is the difference?
1: And to me, like, okay, I think about like in education being proposed for like if if I, th- I wonder about how schools are going to um prepare for for this in the future and if they're going to have plans that include being prepared for the disruption and think about what kind of resources they need to put into place you know depending on their community what kind of um access to the internet and stuff like that that kids have and even teacher training their ability to, to perform, you know, teaching online. So to me, it's like, is that preparation just being prepared for the disruption itself? Like we want to have backups and storage and, you know, stockpiles or... Is it about actually preparing?
0: Oh, like preparing an action plan? Yeah. Okay. So um, it involves both of those. We, we, ha- we have both of those. The energy sector... So the, the United States has a petroleum reserve, right? A strategic reserve... That is stored in salt caves. Um, it's like millions of barrels or something like that. A huge amount. Just in case. Right? Mm-hmm. For whatever reason. So we we have like stockpiles. Um, reserves of primary energy. And then we also have plans for different types of disruptions primarily though it would be like terrorist attacks or cyber security disruptions
1: yeah, yeah or, or weather
0: or weather events yeah right so like the electric utilities they all have plans for changes in demand due to weather events or like surges, demand surges because of a terrible blizzard or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember Grandpa and I had a conversation one time about how <clears throat> just because of um, you know, things evolve over time, so things that you know, looking at let's say the history of the oil business mm-hmm. um, it really doesn't make logical sense in some ways that almost all of the refining operations are along the coast that the it's a coastline that gets hit with hurricanes a lot and it's getting worse right when but i mean that developed like that because it made sense you know way back when like oh we're digging this out of the ground let's build a refinery next door so that we can you know, not have to transport it to to be able to refine it. But over time, that decision has concentrated refineries in in areas that are hardest hit by hurricanes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know for natural gas, there's refineries near the gas extraction points. So, in the Permian Basin and, like, back in fields and stuff.
1: hmm
0: um, Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting.
1: But maybe it would make more sense, like, to look at it more strategically, wouldn't it make sense to have those spread out so that, I mean, there is a there is a it cost would. to transporting it, and exactly. people don't like pipelines going through their
0: neighborhoods. Truly, yes, but <laughs>
1: they also don't like being
0: without gas or electricity. electricity. Right? That's a or great. Electricity. That's a great point. That's a great point. I, I feel like that's um, one of the one of the main conflicts of renewable energy. Or you know, before you understand that we rely heavily on natural gas, people tend to tend to like you know want a hundred percent renewable energy. But if you want a hundred percent electricity all the time, then we we still need that capacity, the existing capacity in coal and natural gas. So, obviously, we're going to work on phasing it out, but right now we still rely on it. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to mention, since you said that it would be strategically smarter, it would be strategically smarter to have the refineries somewhere else. Do you have me on speaker? Yeah. Could you take it off? I'm hearing my voice back to me. Hello? Yeah, that's better. Okay, Okay, perfect. Yeah, so I would say that one of the complexities of that, although it is strategically smarter to have refineries in places where they wouldn't get hit by natural disasters, um, those are privately owned. So there's many different stakeholders involved in maintaining energy security and one of the complexities is who gets to decide. So actually many of the many of the facts or like the conditions that currently exist in the electric grid in our utilities, in, you know, our production, manufacturing, um, and processing, those are decided by private entities that own those facilities, and although they do work closely with the government, I think it would be hard to just, like, you know, make that decision for the private companies that do that, you know what I mean? We rely on natural gas, which means we have to build pipelines to meet demand. And with growing demand, we have to build more pipelines. And once we build more pipelines, we're stuck with these assets that we're not going to abandon. You know what I mean? Right.
1: Yeah, and all the support services that go with it, you know, you might have a great field in the middle of Iowa that would be perfect and hurricane-proof. But it's going it to cost... It doesn't have a road, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's going to cost that much more to start from scratch.
0: Exactly. So there's a distinction in the energy sector with types of energy. Um, so like the the production margin versus the build margin. So... Comparing how much it costs to build something new to replace a certain capacity, versus how much it costs to continue operating the existing capacity. For example, um, I one of my colleagues wrote this in a discussion last week, saying that forty-one percent of coal capacity in the United States is more expensive to operate than it would cost to build the same amount of new renewable. Right. But the... So, like, your first impulse, of course, is to say, okay, well, then let's build the new renewable. But the owners of the existing, like, 41%, they're not going to build new renewables. They already built their coal. They right. already own that. They don't have to build something else. So how do we societally address that?
1: Yeah, it's like you have a house and it's not energy efficient, but you can afford to pay the electric bill every month of 170 instead of $67. And it's going to cost you Twelve thousand dollars to make it energy efficient. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, "Well, I'll just keep paying my hundred and sixty bucks." Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. What's well, the role of government? That's the role of government to be able to push an innovation that's for the common good over the finish line until yeah. it's until So
0: it's yeah, I mean, my if I were to suggest a single policy to the government. And they would, like, guaranteed take it. The only thing that I'm sure of is that we should replace all coal capacity with natural gas. That's the only thing that I'm positive about. Because, first of all, existing coal plants can easily be um, adapted to fire natural gas. Second of all, um, coal is more polluting and less efficient... Both are deployable, but natural gas is more deployable, so you can fire up a natural gas plant in six minutes, whereas it takes, like, hours to get a coal plant to the same heat. The only part of that that needs to be negotiated is the workforce, the people who work in coal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, they need to be retrained to work in natural gas. Yeah. So, they do. Yeah, so I would say... That's the great thing about natural gas is that you can take an existing asset and so instead of prematurely like shutting it down and not replacing it with anything because it's too expensive or just leaving it there and building solar panel uh, farm is that you just make some adjustments and get it to fire natural gas and it produces...
1: and better or cleaner or whatever
0: yeah it produces like half of the emissions and And does it
1: it maintain the same same approximate workforce because that's that's one of the things I hear about um, about um, uh, solar I don't know about solar but wind is that the money to be made in wind like in terms of employment is in the manufacturing and the setup not in the in the production yeah because it's
0: because it's a it has no fuel it's a passive it's a passive form of energy i mean it's not passive because the wind moving it is active but i mean nobody has to dig the wind out of the ground
1: Right, I mean, but it, it does require some maintenance, but it's, like, negligible compared to... Yeah, almost none. Work a coal mine.
0: Yeah, very little, I would say.
1: So it, it's not, like, an, a, a renewable employment source, you know what I'm saying? It's like a sustainable It's sustainable
0: energy, but it's not sustainable employment.
1: Which is a factor, I mean, in the overall economy of things.
0: It is a factor. Yeah, because what good is it to have 100% renewable energy if, like, nobody can afford their electricity bills because they don't have jobs? You know what right. I mean? Um, there's no simple answer.
1: Yeah. So what can a regular person do to be prepared for disruption of energy security? Or is it, like, completely out of our hands as individuals?
0: Hmm. Well, I would say that we live in a very energy secure country. So none of us really need backup diesel generators. Like, it's very rare that we would actually need to participate in any type of scenario where our energy security is severely threatened. Right? A lot of, I mean, What threats to our energy security would do most likely would have an economic effect in our lives rather than actually, you know, um, hindering our access to to gas or electricity.
1: So what we need to do is vote.
0: Right. Yes, you should vote. Vote, get informed about... Energy in your state, um, and understand what what is actually possible to improve, and what is what is actually going to make. So, for example, if you insisted in Wyoming that Wyoming be a hundred percent renewable by five years from now, actually, that would be energy insecure. That would that would not help our energy security.
1: So I don't have to go out and buy a generator. I already have a a solar panel for my camper, so I can always charge my phone if I need to.
0: Yeah. I would say you're more prepared than the majority of the population, just with that.
1: What about, like, if I'm remodeling a house, should I shift to using all gas or all electric, or is it wiser to keep a mix?
0: Um, I think it's wiser to keep a mix because if the electricity goes out and it's in the middle of the cold winter, you can just like turn on the oven and sit by the oven or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Or have your gas heater on. And the opposite is also true. Like if something happens to the gas supply, you'll still have electricity and you can make do with that. A lot of people are favoring shifting to full electrification, but I am personally not a fan of that.
1: Well, I don't like electric stoves, so that alone...
0: Yeah, me neither. Okay, let me get back to my script. (laughs) Those are all my questions anyway, so all oh. you know. Okay, well, you, if you come up with any on the fly, you can still bring them up too. Okay. So, even before the pandemic, the United States' vulnerabilities in terms of energy security were identified. Um, so, we actually have reduced our vulnerability in the past decade or so by shifting from being a net energy importer to a net energy exporter and reducing the use of oil in our domestic energy mix in terms of the power sector, what we use to, to produce electricity. We used to be a little more dependent on oil. Now we use less oil and also less coal and more natural gas, which is all produced here in the United States. Like, is there
1: a framework or a formula that's like we're, we wanna like, okay, if we
0: get to X, it means we are energy secure. Yeah, is there like a quantifiable framework for identifying energy security? I saw that there it, it does exist, but the thing is that it's, it's kind of qualitative, you know what I mean? Because it, it relies on the quality of different political relationships... So, for example, if we were just trading, um, if we were getting our natural gas from Canada, that's different from if we were relying on getting natural gas from Russia or China, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we might have the exact same energy mix and everything else, like, all else equal, if the source of of the primary energy, of the fuel makes a difference yes. in how energy secure. If
1: it's like a, a less stable relationship.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, so what usually creates the any type of vulnerability in terms of energy security is lack of stability. So it can be in like just prices globally or it can be domestic conditions or it can be political relationships that are unstable. So so although we have reduced our vulnerability, we, since we're still dependent on oil, we're still vulnerable to sharp changes in oil supply. That's just evidenced by what's going on right now. Um, and so the next question is, what has been the impact on our renewable energy supply, right? So um, the distinction between non-renewable energy and renewable energy is that renewable energy we use almost exclusively, if not completely exclusively, for the power sector, which the power sector is what produces electricity. Um, And non-renewable energy is used for several sectors used for the power sector it's used for the transportation sector and it's used for um like the commercial sector i guess manufacturing and stuff like that industrial right industrial sector so um what has been the impact of the pandemic on our renewable energy supply well right now growth in capacity which means the installation of new renewable energy plants has slowed or stopped in many cases, and manufacturing has also slowed down. Why? Because
1: they're considered uh, essential still, huh?
0: So even if essential sectors are still operating, doesn't mean they're operating to full capacity or operating effectively right now. For example, if you have tried to call your bank like any time in the past two weeks, it's almost impossible to do anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I wasn't even able to do my like pay by phone with my bank, which is an automated line. Mm-hmm. And banks are essential. So it's just like everything is slowing down. So anyway, yeah, manufacturing is slowed down and installation of new capacity has slowed down. But on the other hand, fuel-less sources like wind and solar are not going to be affected in the same way as the oil and gas industry. And since coal and natural gas prices haven't experienced the same price drop as crude oil and gasoline... A lot of analysts think that in the coming months, electric utilities will start to lean more on renewables, since they cost less to operate than natural gas and coal plants. So this could be good for renewables, although um, really financial insecurity is never good for new investments or for like something that's, you know, innovative. But at this point, renewables are like a reliably good investment. They're competitive. In terms of the actual mechanics of the energy sector or the power sector, there is a limit to that, which is um, how much of, like what share of demand needs to be deployable and what share can be dependent on renewables right so I'm not totally clear on what the answer to that is but I agree that
1: it's an opportunity for some
0: it is definitely an opportunity and um, something that I said I've said to a couple people already about this whole situation is that the Green New Deal is going to look a whole lot better after all of this, because it proposes to be a jobs bill. So, right now, it's not clear what the shifts in the electricity market are going to look like, but over the next two months, more data is going to be, re- be released on that. And I'm definitely going to do an episode about it. Cool. So, circling back to our main question how secure is the United States' energy supply during the pandemic? I would say our energy supply is less secure during the pandemic than before the pandemic. So as we talked about a little bit before, it's hard to quantify, but we can say that our energy supply is currently less secure than before. Although we have done good work mitigating our vulnerabilities by shifting usage to domestically produced natural gas and installing renewable capacity, so our current nearly exclusive reliance on gasoline in the transportation sector could prove to be a critical vulnerability during future crises or political conflicts. Um, But what does future vulnerability mitigation look like? So I think it's going to involve working a lot more on developing electric vehicles and also working hard to continue to shift the power sector's energy mix away from fuel-based sources. And both of those require better batteries. So it almost always comes down to batteries in the energy sector
1: such an old technology. Yeah. I mean, old, but you know what I mean? It's like relatively.
0: Yes. I mean, storing energy like the oldest ways of storing energy is just moving water upwards.
1: Yeah.
0: Or like putting a rock in a high place.
1: You know what when you were saying that, <clears throat> it it kind of I think a good analogy is that our, our energy security, I think it was cool when you said, you know, when I asked the question, um, what can a regular person do to be prepared, which is like, don't worry too much about it because probably you'll be fine because we have a really strong energy or, you know, whatever it is.
0: Mm-hmm. We are very energy secure. Yeah, we have a really robust electricity system and everything. Yeah, I think
1: there's an analogy to that, to the actual pandemic itself. Like, most of us are going to be just fine. Like, this is a really scary situation, and it seems overwhelming, or it is overwhelming. But at the end of the day most of us are going to be fine you know i mean we're taking a hit individual lives are being lost and that's a that's a huge tragedy Mm -hmm. but for the most part you know it does show our individual vulnerabilities like the 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 pan the not the pandemic but the actual virus you know affects us differently based on our own individual vulnerabilities of you know underlying conditions health. yeah I don't know there's just something about that that it's like a, an analogy to the energy security too Yeah, like we're going to be fine but it is kind of shining a light on some vulnerabilities that we have
0: right and something about um, like threats to our energy system is that with each level of threat, an additional threat can do much more damage. So, So like, if it was just the coronavirus pandemic or if it was just the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, um, it wouldn't have such a stark effect on oil prices and gas prices but both of them together create a compound effect and you know right. you could stack on top of that a terrorist attack
1: yeah i mean i think that's kind of an unstated vulnerability i thought about that the other day like this would be the perfect time which you know I don't or want a to
0: te- you awesome. mean a terrible time the worst time
1: <laughs> well i mean a perfect time for them you know <laughs> Like it's awkward <clears>
0: to <throat> Yes, this would be a terrible time. Exactly. This would be the worst time. It's like right now is the worst time to get in a car wreck. Or the right. the worst time to have a heart attack. Yeah. Or, or the worst time to break your leg while you're walking down the street or whatever. It's just the uh. worst it's the worst time to experience any additional threat or stress or catastrophe or tragedy or anything right because there's already several things.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, we ended that on a slightly depressing note to say the least. Um, but I would say the main takeaway is that we're still an overall pretty energy secure country and we'll see how things turn out once this pandemic is over. Um that's a wrap. Any questions, comments, or suggestions, please at me on Twitter or submit it to my Q&A story highlight on Instagram. Uh, my The podcast handle is at the.essential.podcast, and on Twitter you can find me at at Pier and weir P-I-E-R-I-N-W-E-I-R. I hope you guys enjoyed this, and stay safe and be well.